Blog Talk Radio. Today on Backroom Politics, we have a budget deal. If you thought the log jam was bad, you should be on the George Washington Bridge. Hey, speaking of the George Washington Bridge, Chris Christie gives his state of the state and gives all of 148 words. We're going to talk about Bridgegate. We're also going to talk about the sexual harassment crisis going on in DOD. Why are they having closed hearings and why is this such a problem for the Pentagon? That and tell me a story today on Backroom Politics. Wait a minute, I gotta hit the intro. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll free 1 877. 662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. And good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It's Tuesday here in our nation's capital, which means it's time for the best political radio talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics, live from Shelley's Backroom. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday to my left as he burns himself with his cigar is the former eight-term member of Congress representing Washington's 2nd Congressional District. He is the Honorable Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Al. Ow! Yeah, exactly. Enough said. To my 11 o'clock, he is the former floor chief for then Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is the former Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. Hello, Justin. Glad to be here. Uh, and to his left, ironically, she is the former Obama appointee as general counsel to the Maritime Administration. She is the former House Counsel for Homeland Security under Benny Thompson. She's the Honorable Denise Krepp. Hello, Denise. Hello, Justin. And to my one o'clock, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce, serving under last count four presidents. A former longtime Senate staffer and a very distinguished and factual fellow from the Stimson Center. He is our fact checker. He is Alan Moore. Hi, Alan. Hello, Justin. And to my right, he is ironically the former executive director of the Democratic Party of the great state of Maryland. He is longtime Washington insider Carl Tuvin. Hello, Justin. And we are honored and privileged to have such a great special guest with us joining us today. He is the former congressman out of Louisiana, and former chairman of the Appropriations Committee in the House of Representatives. He is the Honorable Chairman Bob Livingston. Mr. Chairman, thank you for joining us here on Backroom Politics. Thank you. Thank you very much, Justin. It's good to be here with you. But I'm overwhelmed by all this talent, so I'll probably be the quietest of the bunch. No, no, no. We're picking on you a lot today, sir. We've got great stuff, thus great that, timing that you're here today. We're going to open up today... Obviously, we're going to be talking about everybody's focused on Bridgegate. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But the big news coming out of Washington off the Hill today is that today the House approved a three-day extension to get them situated enough to talk about the $1 billion-plus bill coming out of the Senate. We basically have a budget spending bill in place ready for the House to take up. Now, the question is, one, what's in this bill? Well, what's in this bill is several things. One, it does uh, $1 trillion in agency funding to restore the $45 billion that happened under sequestration. 
There's $487 billion in funding for the core budget at the Pentagon, which allows for a pay increase to military uh, and civilian workers. $82 billion in additional Pentagon and State Department funding for operations. And the Democrats love the fact that there's funding to implement Obamacare and the financial services associated with that. Now, all that, there's also other stuff we're going to talk about that's in this bill, but uh, Alan Moore, I'm going to start with you. When you saw the bill, anything stand up as far as surprising? I know we talked about it a little bit last week, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of add-ons that we've seen between last Tuesday and now. Yeah, let's remember what this is. So this is flesh on the bones. The bones were created a month ago when we, when we agreed by majorities in both houses, bipartisan majorities, on what the outline of, of next year's, of, of the budget will be for the year that started October 1st, this past October 1st. This is the appropriations bill that, that gives the detail to the framework that was passed. So uh, you, we, we turned it back to the appropriators, the appropriations subcommittees, um, to figure out within their own, there are 12 different bills in effect that are in this so-called omnibus bill, and each one has lots of details, some of which are well-known, some of which we'll be discovering in the next few days, because there are little nuggets, little surprises. This is, after all, the U.S. Congress and the appropriations process. We're lucky to have a true expert here, and he's probably heard a few things, uh, and he certainly knows some stuff about how this, how this gets done. The big surprise is, one, we, we on time, did the details. We put the flesh on the bones. The second thing that that I think is interesting in big picture is that today's spending for discretionary programs, that is non-defense stuff, is actually in real spending, adjusted for inflation, about 10% lower than it was in 2008, uh, President Bush's last year. Well, Mr. Chairman, obviously this is the culmination of a lot of work. And, you know, heading up this work was uh, Chairman Paul Ryan, head of the Budget Committee in the House, and Senator Patty Murray for the Democrats out of the Senate. They put a lot of effort, and it seems like they brought a lot of bipartisan support for this. Is that bipartisanship for show, or is there really some substance behind this. Is there light at the end of the tunnel? We might see an end of the logjam. Well, I don't know if it'll end the logjam, but it is certainly a, a, a step forward compared to what we've been doing for the last three or four years. Remember, the Senate didn't pass any budget uh, for some uh, three or four years, and this was an opportunity for the chairman of the budget committee in the Senate, uh, with the chairman of the budget committee in the House, to come together, pound out an agreement that they could take to their leaning to the left members of the Senate who are in control, and they're leaning to the right members of the House who are in control, and actually get them to agree on something. The last three or four years have been really tough in getting any kind of agreement whatsoever. So I think that their accomplishment in December was a great step forward. But this is the first, this is literally the first budget that we've seen throughout the Obama administration. 
Is that just a lack of, of unity on the Hill? Is it maybe a lack of messaging from the White House or a combination of both? Well, there's a combination of lack of leadership in all sectors. And you can start in the White House and work, work your way through Congress. Uh, there hasn't been the will to pass appropriations bills. And they've been operating under what we call the CR, or the Continuing Resolution, which does nothing more than say, we spent so much last year on exactly these programs, let's do it again this year. And they might tweak it just a tiny bit, but they're not running the government. They've, they've had the government on autopilot for three, the last three or four years, and that has got to end. What these people have done here with the first step in the Senate, hopefully will be uh, uh, agreed to in the House in some fashion after some conference uh, uh, disagreements. Once that happens, it means that we get back to regular order. And I want to give great credit to Senator Barbara Mikulski, who's the chairman of the Appropriations Committee in the Senate, who worked with uh, Chairman Hal Rogers of Kentucky, uh, chairman in the House, who have worked together to bring the system back to working order. And if, if, if nothing else happens, this is a great step. Let me go back a little bit before we get into the guts of, of the spending bill that's coming before the House here in the next three days. Is where did we trip up? And when I say we, where did Capitol Hill trip up as far as losing the regular order of the day in getting this budget? I'll get to you, Congressman now. Vice Chairman, you're not, you weren't a chairman, so I'm going to go to the chairman. Oh, oh, oh. Ooh, Ooh. Chairman. There was this tiny little committee. <laughs> <laughs> a chairman is a chairman. Oh, there we go. Okay. Lingo, Lingo to, Lingo to the chairman. I'll go to you, Congressman. Where did we trip up? Where, where did, where did we first see the tripping start to happen? Uh, I guess it, it, it's hard to say where things started to break down in Congress, but the fact is, uh, members of Congress, Republicans and Republicans, Democrats and Democrats and Democrats and Republicans stopped talking to one, each, one another. Uh, the schedules got so burdensome that all they had the time to do was raise money, and they do that with great aplomb. And, and, and frankly, uh, that for a long while, that's about all they did. Uh, and when I'm talking about raising money, I'm talking for their campaigns, not for themselves, but not for the government either. Uh, and then you had this vast disagreement on raising taxes. The president wanted to raise taxes. The, the, the Republicans wanted to cut spending. And the two never came together. And when they stopped talking to one another, the system just broke down. They're beginning to bridge these gaps because the country demands it. And I think what you're going to see in the next elections, uh, regardless of the outcome, is that people are going to start sending folks back who want to work and get things done. Congressman Al, your thoughts? I, I agree with everything that, uh, that, that he said. Uh, but I, want, I wanted to add something that's been a little theme in the last few programs. When Newt Gingrich came in, he wanted to take over control, and he essentially eliminated the process by which you go through committees. And that's where you begin to for forge compromises on little things and what have you when you go through the committee and then, then the full committee and so forth. So when you bring something to the floor, it's, it's not so much a, a, a live or die kind of thing. A lot has been worked out. 
And uh, what, what really we've seen here is they've kind of gone back to that a little bit, and if they go more back to that, I think things will be a lot better. In the I, I agree with what you said, with the exception of the characterization of Newt, because uh, I was the chairman of the Appropriations Committee under Newt, and uh, I was on the Appropriations Committee for 20 years, and I always got along with the Democrats, and we always uh, were able to work together, and what, regardless of who was in control, we passed bills that actually did work. And that, that stopped after Newt left, after I left, and a few others left. Uh, and uh, they stopped, started adopting goofy rules like, well, uh, we're only going to bring up bills that one party supports. The Hastert rule. Uh, you said it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and frankly, that led to the deterioration of the whole process. Bob Hines, you know, we, we're talking about the process. Oh, oh, go ahead, Congressman. I, you first. I stand, I stand corrected. I, I like to take my shots at Newt, but if this one was wrong, I'll defer. <laughs> wow, there's a first. Alan Warren and then Bob. Yeah, and I think that, that in, in fairness, um, both of these guys have, uh, have something to offer here because what we began to see in both houses was that certain issues would creep up into the leader's office. It, it, I don't know when it first began in either the Senate or the House, but but it it didn't begin after Newt, and I'm not sure it started with Newt. And the question was, what kinds of issues? Obviously, not all the appropriations bills, but some tough issues. Maybe it would be a tax bill. Maybe it would be a a, a hard issue on one of the the difficult social issues would be pulled into the leader's office in part because sometimes the committees couldn't get it done and wanted the help, and then as you start giving help, increasingly you start pulling things into the top. We see the same phenomenon in the White House. This White House micromanages all over the place, as Bob Gates has reminded us in his new book, but it didn't start with, with, with Obama. Presidents have been pulling big issues in, into the White House and not letting the cabinet have a lot to say. So there's been a trend that, that historians will have to figure out when exactly it started. A lot of, a lot of uh, responsibility or guilt, if you will, to go around on that. Now, now the Senate here, Congressman Al, has, has, has almost seemed giddy on the fact that they've got this bill in place. Uh, we've seen people like uh, Senator Shelby out of Alabama. Susan Collins was almost dancing a jig coming out when they, in the announcement on Monday of the, of the deal. Is, is, that, is that the same kind of happiness on the Republicans in the Senate that we're going to see possibly over in the House side, or are we wishing for too much? You're asking me? Yes. Probably ask the Republicans. Uh, well, I'll go to the Democrat first, then I'll go to the Republicans. Okay. Uh, I would think that the Democrats in the House should be, if they've got any brains, uh, happy with this and not ask for too many changes. Uh, we've never really quite seen Nancy Pelosi let loose with her left-wing game. And that, I think could upset the whole thing if they go too far. Because I think John Boehner is going to have his hands full keeping the, uh, the, the Tea Party people uh, sufficiently in line that this can pass. 
and he doesn't need a helping hand from the Democrats. Mr. Chairman, is this, is this happiness that we're seeing from people like Shelby and Collins, is that something that they can transfer over to the House side, even though they seem like the Tea Party might have their fingers in the cookie jar? Well, they're, they're happy because they see progress, and they haven't seen progress for the last three or so, or years or so. Uh, certainly, you've got your people on the far left and, and, and the far right, be they uh, uh, Tea Party or otherwise, whatever you call the far left, I'm not sure, uh, or I won't call them that. Uh, but uh, the point is... Oh, tell uh, us what you really <laughs> Remember, this is unsanitized radio. I know that. What, I, what I will say is that uh, to, the, to my friends on the extreme ends of either party, uh, either part of the spectrum, let me say that if you want to control things, uh, the chances are if you are a purist, you're going to be in an eternal minority. The only way that, the, that this country can be governed under our Constitution, as long as we have it, and I hope it's for a very long time, is for people to come together, to talk together, and to work out their differences. And if they ignore each other's differences and insist on purity, they're going to be in the minority, and nobody pays attention to the minority. The Republicans control the House. The Democrats control the Senate. After this next election, if the Republicans take control of, the house, of both houses, which is possible, uh, they're going to get a lot done. But then they still got to deal with the president. And if they don't, then uh, those who have uh, reduced, or for example, if the Republicans lose uh, the majority in the, in the House uh, because uh, the purists want too much, being in the minority is absolutely intolerable. It, it just won't get your policies done. Denise Crap. Just I can say kudos to the Senate for doing what they did. I mean, it, it, the document's over 1,300 pages long. I went through it this, uh, this afternoon just trying to find one tiny provision. And to go through 1,300 pages of very dense, and I'm talking dense information, is impressive. So to make changes at this point, you can tinker, you know, bits and pieces. But if you start going wholesale on 1,300 pages of line by line, we'll never get a bill passed. But I mean, right. but, I mean, but what Rumkowski said, and and the reality still dictates is, and I'll go to you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Senator Mikowski out of Maryland said that, hey, look, this not everybody got what they want. There was pain on both sides. Uh, but can you foresee a winner or loser on either side in the budget deal as it stands right now, coming out of the Senate? Well, I haven't analyzed it. I haven't looked at every one of those pages, and I have no idea. I can tell you that there are a lot of things uh, that I've seen that I'm very pleased with. I mean, key issues, uh, both defense and domestic policy, that should have been addressed years ago haven't been. They've been ignored, and uh, they've been addressed now in this bill. Uh, I expect the House to, to do something different, and I expect them to go to conference committees and work out those differences. I think that most members now in both parties understand that if they can't get an agreement, they're all nailed next time around. Uh, Alan Moore, though, I, one of the things that stood out for me as I was going through just the executive summary of the bill is that, you know, in this time that we're talking about having to cut spending, yet raise and generate revenue, the fight between non-discretionary spending and discretionary spending in the agencies, what we're finding is the IRS, was left alone as far as not getting additional funding from their pre-sequestration levels. They're still at the sequestration levels. That seems odd in a time when we're supposed to be looking at revamping the tax, 
tax code and getting our revenue stream back on target. Does that seem on to you? You know, there going to be a there will be any number of anomalies, some of which uh, there will presumably be efforts to amend in the Senate, and we'll see what happens. We'll see if the if the if the appropriators, which is a large group in the Senate and an even larger group in the House, if they stick together. Remember, this, the Richard Shelby is the minority is is the, the, the ranking member the ranking Republican on appropriations. Mm -hmm. So he and Chairman Mikulski had to agree on how to divvy up the total pie and then turn it over to all of these subcommittees. And although we think about it as a thirteen hundred page bill, it's twelve bills. So it's twelve hundred and ten page bills, if you will. Now there some are going to be longer than others, some are shorter, but it's you you take it in bite sized chunks. As I said before, there, there will be a lot of little nuggets in there and a few little things. I don't know the details on the IRS question. I know that the consumer, uh, 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 the, the, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission and the SEC came up very short of what they were asking for, and that was probably as a result of, uh, of leader um, Shelby's antipathy towards those agencies. There's a bunch of stuff that's... That, 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 that may rise to, uh, to an amendment. We'll see what happens. There's not a lot of time. The Congress is trying to go out of town. They've created a, a three-year spending bill to get them from here to the weekend. Can they get everything done between now and then? That's going to take uh, goodwill among, in particular, other senators, and we'll see what the level of willingness to go along with that is. That's a, that's a really important thing for us to watch in the coming days. And by the way, if you want to ask a question of anybody here at the round table or join the discussion, our switchboard is open. You can call us toll-free, 877-662-3713. Again, that number is 877-662-3713. Bob Hines, your thoughts? Uh, I want to go back to something that uh, Chairman Livingston said, and it's, it, I think our listeners should pay particularly attention to what he said because it's, he explained how things got so bad. With extremists on both sides, purists, if you will, on both sides, you can't, you can't negotiate because if you negotiate, you, you've left the tribe, you're, you're an outcast. It is the problem that we have let ourselves get into and it is a disaster if we can't get out of it. I think the most the most encouraging sight that, uh, that I saw in the last few weeks was when Mr. Boehner was able to go uh, after uh, uh, they finished uh, up at the end of the end of December and said, in effect, uh, to some of the uh, outside fundraising organizations, Club for Growth, uh, the Rise uh, Heritage for Foundation, Heritage Operation, Action, Heritage Action. Those are the kinds of places that are just they're pushing really hard to get purists elected. And the reality is that you cannot run the government with a bunch of purists. You're always, as Bob said, you're going to be in a minority. Well, Heritage, Heritage has already come out. They tweeted today that they, are, they themselves are analyzing the bill and will scrutinize the bill in their own right. Do you think that Heritage is going to have any sway on especially some of the Tea Party contingent in the House of Representatives as this yeah. goes before committee and before the Congress? Well, I'm sure they'll have some, there'll be some uh, hardliners. There always are. I am also sh pretty sure that 
Mr. Boehner would not have done what he did unless, as the votes developed in the House, he saw that enough of the Tea Party people were realizing that they were making a fundamental mistake. How many times can you try to do something and defund the Obamacare and it doesn't work? You keep doing it over and over again. Eventually you realize you're going insane. It's crazy. They're learning something. Hopefully they're learning how to negotiate. Say, look, we're in a majority. We want to get this much of the bill. Minority's going to get something too. But we're the majority and we're going to write a bill that we can both live with. Let's, let's go ahead and do it. That's what has to be done. It's going to have to be done as long as the, as the Congress is divided. But, Mr. Chairman Livingston, I mean, there is an inherent risk for some of these Tea Party members. They were elected on very right-wing, cut-spending, 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 spending too much ideals of their electorate. Now they're coming back to Washington saying, look, we struck a deal with the Democrats. That brings pre-sequestration up. Is there a risk to those individual members as far as going along with Speaker Boehner. And there's always that risk. You hold yourself out to that risk every time you run for election. But my goodness, uh, you're running to be a member of the Congress of the United States. You're not running as a, as a member of one uh, exclusive little clique of people who will be a minority for the rest of their lives. And, and in order to be effective, a very conservative person, as I consider myself to be, has to sit down and work out, as I did with my friend Al Swift, we were of differing views. We talked to one another. We negotiated. And we came up with packages that we could sell through the whole House of Representatives. And, and that's the process envisioned by the Constitution. And if you can't live with that, you shouldn't be running for office in the first place. Denise Krepp. And I agree. And I think here, you've, got, you've got two examples of uh, individuals that are uh, realizing the importance of working together. Uh, that's Duncan Hunter and uh, Garamendi out of California. They're the ranking and the chair of the Maritime Subcommittee on House T&I. They both spoke today at a, at a symposium, and they said the exact same thing. It wasn't, you know, the Republicans say this or the Democrats say that. They were both speaking on the same piece of paper saying they both supported an issue. Now, when you get support from your Democrat and you get support from your Republican, that's how you get legislation. Otherwise, you don't get anything at all. Exactly. Carl Tubin. <laughs> as far as the Tea Party goes... I think if, 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 if these organizations put pressure on them and, and they step out of line, it's going to be another um, uh, nail in their coffin. Uh, but Congressman Al, one of the things that we've seen throughout this process is, and he's been criticized for it, is the president's almost lackadaisical kind of uh, almost aloofness that he's demonstrated throughout this whole process. Is this something that might kickstart the president to become more active, or is he just sitting back and letting the chips fall where they may? Well, he's tried that, and it hasn't worked. So one would hope that he's finally figured it out, that he's going to, you know, presidents need to provide leadership. Uh, and he's, he started out, at, started out his first term, uh, Letting, and I thought he was going to let uh, people, you know, in, in the Congress back and forth and kind of find out what's popular and what's not popular and whatever. And then he would step in and provide solutions on a key piece of legislation. And I waited, and I waited, and in fact, I'm still waiting. It just didn't happen. Carl Tubin? You know, the fact is, is that I think that he's had 
his people on the Hill talking to uh, Senator Murray, talking to Senator Bukowski, and I think uh, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that we aren't seeing. I mean, he was out, out, out in uh, Hawaii taking his, uh, his uh, Christmas New Year's break, uh, while these others were in town doing work. So I think that there's a lot of input that, and a lot of communication between the White House and, and the Congress. Alan Moore, you want to jump in on that? Uh, it's obvious that there's there's always communication back and forth, but I don't think there's any way to get around the fact that, that as, as Al points out, and I, if he disagrees with what I'm about to say, he will certainly tell us, but right out of the starting blocks in 2009, we had to clean up unfinished appropriations bills from 2008. We had to do what we're now doing except it was four years, five years ago. And what did the president do? Admittedly, he didn't have his full team together, but here was his great first chance to put an imprint on these spending decisions that had not yet been made. What did he do? He said, go to it, Congress, and, and, and give me a product. And admittedly, as I say, he didn't have a full team, but it wasn't like he had no team. He had a group of people. Months later, they're doing a stimulus bill he looked again to the Congress, give me a stimulus bill. What do you guys think? And so twice in the first 12 months, he basically said to the Congress, which was overwhelmingly Democratic at the time, if we, as we remember, give it to me, give it to me. Not here's what I need, here's what I want. I'm sure around the edges there were some things. And suddenly the, the heavily Democratic Congress said, woohoo, here we go, we're in charge. And we have been trying to recover from the, what I consider those missteps at the beginning ever since. But we're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, we're going to continue discussion on the uh, spending bill that's going to go into the House, hopefully in the next three days. This is Backroom Politics live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We will be back in three minutes. Stay with us. You know, for those who listen to Backroom Politics and know about Shelley's Backroom, they think of it as some sort of cigar bar where politicians go to smoke their cigars and drink their martinis. Actually, what you don't know about Shelley's Backroom, Shelley's Backroom has one of the greatest menus in the city. I kid you not. You've got the campfire wings, famous campfire wings, one pound of roasted, not fried, seasoned marinated jumbo chicken rings served with their own special honey mustard sauce. Folks, if you like chicken wings, you've never had the campfire wings. Best wings in the city, bar none, I guarantee. If you don't like it, Al, you can call us up and tell us that you don't like it. Uh, you have daily specials. Come down on a day when they have the Justin Chicken Sandwich. The sandwich named after me, breaded chicken breast, provolone cheese, Thick-cut bacon on a Kaiser roll served with a honey mustard sauce. Folks, it doesn't get more artery-clogging than that, but it is worth it. Come down to Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the premier sponsor of Backroom Politics.
food packages. And we're back here live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Uh, continuing our discussion on the latest budget spending bill that's come from the Senate. Joining us again is our special guest for today. He's former Probes Committee Chair Bob Livingston out of the great state of Louisiana. Again, thanks for joining us, thanks, Mr. Sir. Chairman. Uh, let, let's talk about some of the, some of the details in what's in this $1 trillion deal. The president got a big win in the addition of a billion dollars towards the Head Start pre-K program going back into the budget. Does, does the president claim this is a victory, or are we going to see that be one of the contentious <laughs> items going into conference, Mr. Chairman? Well, he certainly, it certainly could be uh, contentious. Uh, remember, it's been passed by the Senate. It hasn't been passed by the House. So we don't know what the shape of their bill is going to be. Uh, but we do think that there's, there's a great deal of agreement. Uh, what I think is that the, the president will uh, have to fight for his programs, and in the final analysis, we'll see what the conference committees report to the members. But if they can't get an agreement, ultimately we have nothing, and they haven't made any progress at all. Denise, does the, do you think that the president's looking at this as somewhat of a shallow victory? I don't know, Justin. To be honest with you, I, I'm not sure what the White House is doing. I mean, you, my, my perspective of the White House was coming from the Department of Transportation, where we were being told that we were not allowed, as agency political, to be talking to Congress. Now, which you know goes back to what others have been saying: you need to actually have conversation. So, if the White House and others in the administration can have reasonable conversations with the Senate and with the House, talking about this bill. That is the way to go forward. It's not to say we're not going to talk to you. It's not going to say we disagree with you. It's called having a conversation so that we as a country have a budget. But, Congressman, now, again, going back to what's in the budget, one of the big items is $487 billion for the core budget, giving the pay increase to Pentagon civilian workers. That obviously is going to be a bipartisan support, especially as strung out as our military and uh, defense civilian forces are. But are the purists in the House, do you think, are going to try and shave that down, or is that untouchable? Well, it, it's very hard to, to deny salaries to people who are defending the country and the, all of the infrastructure that supports that. Uh, I probably voted against the defense appropriations as often as anybody did back during the Reagan era because I didn't like certain things that it was going for. <clears throat> but you've got you've to take care of the people. I remember what, what, what offended me so much is that we were putting all of this money into Star Wars and I had... I had guys, low-level guys at NAS Whidbey who were sacking groceries in grocery stores in order to make ends meet, and I couldn't figure, I couldn't figure out what, what their priorities were in the Reagan White House, that they were dumping billions into this, and they were uh, starving to death uh, the, the, the guys uh, on, on the front. So uh, it, it depends on what, what they're spending it on. I think that uh, they, they probably do need to replace the money that they took away from the from the soldiers, sailors, and so forth. Denise Crap, you and I have had the conversation, Justin. As, as veterans, you know, 
it's important when you sign up, whether you go in as enlisted or you go in as an officer, to understand what you are doing and also to be able to believe that um, in your government. I mean, if, if you sign the dotted line and on, on, upon signing the dotted line and raising your right hand and saying, you know, swearing to uphold the Constitution of the United States, the government's told you that they will protect and defend you upon your retirement by protecting and defending, I mean paying your retirement, then yes, they should be getting that money and yes, we should be helping them. Do I think that there are going to have to be conversations in the long term about what's going on? Yes. And I think it goes to what we were talking about last week of if everybody has to take a haircut, everybody takes a haircut, but don't put it solely on the veterans. But Mr. Chairman, you know, when we do talk about some of the post-sequestration uh, funding that's been restored as a result of this new spending bill, I have two questions for you. First question is, did sequestration work or was it all for shove? No, sequestration cut spending, and spending has gone down over the last two or three years. Uh, however, uh, our, our net uh, debt has continued to escalate. Uh, we, we were actually borrowing in each uh, year over a trillion dollars three years ago. We're now down to uh, borrowing in order for each year to be funded uh, about uh, $600 billion uh, in, in that range. Uh, so that was primarily due to the sequestration bill. The problem with sequestration was it was just automatic cuts across the board that didn't make sense. And the whole point of ha passing the appropriations process or making it work is to increase the things that work, decrease the things that don't work, eliminate the stuff that's, uh, that's absolutely unnecessary or fraudulent or wasteful, and, and make sure that the people who need to get help get help. Now, as to the veterans, 60% of the defense budget goes uh, to personnel. Uh, in the times that Al was talking about during Reagan, uh, Reagan's time, it was closer to 50%. Uh, the general welfare for the soldier and sailor has, has gone up as it's become more expensive, but also as, as younger and younger members have, have brought their families into the uh, defense uh, support mechanism. And, and so it's more costly to uh, put a service member or support a service member today than it was back when. Uh, but you need technology, too. And while Al was decrying the Star Wars, let me remind you that it was Star Wars that led to missile defense that makes us all much safer than we would be without it today. <laughs> so there. <laughs> so there. He'd have to explain that in more detail to me. <laughs> That's an offline discussion. Uh, but, you know, one of the issues that's been brought up by a lot of the purists uh, and a lot of the Tea Partiers, Mr. Chairman, and some discussion we had last week, I'd like your opinion on, is the fact that what we're seeing right now in today's military is they're joining younger. At 17, 18, 19, they're also retiring younger at 20 years, 37, 38, 39. And a lot of those 39-year-olds still have viable places in the workforce. They're also drawing more and more retirees, younger retirees, are drawing more and more pensions, larger pensions, for expanded amounts of time. There have been some that have said that, look, maybe we need to revamp that and say maybe the 20-year mark isn't the right one. Set an age, be it 45 or 50, before you start drawing, and that might be the solution to some of the spending problems on the non-discretionary spending coming out of DOD. Is that fair? No, I, I don't think you need to look to cutting sailors' pensions. I do think that there are a lot of people in the civilian force uh, where you could uh, 
uh, look uh, to making those cuts. Uh, clearly, the federal pension system uh, has gotten out of control, and we can't afford it. We, these are unfunded liabilities that we're going to have to bring into reality or else we're not going to be able to afford anything. And I'm including in that Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and all of the other big programs that we've passed over the years that, frankly, we don't have the money for. Well, thank you for the lead-in because that leads to my second question is when we look at the budget spending deal that comes out, it doesn't seem that anybody's touching the third rail of non-discretionary spending. Because that's not the role of the appropriators. They right. are discretionary uh, pilots, so to speak. They run the discretionary budget. The mandatory budget is two-thirds of, of what the government spends, and that comes under the authorizing committees. And frankly, we don't readjust those programs about, about once every 30 years. But do, is now the right time for yes. Congress to take up addressing the non-discretionary spending? In my opinion, it is the right time, but I don't think it's going to happen because of the political situation. Alan Moore? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we go over this over and over again. This is what the whole Simpson Bowles uh, enterprise was all about, the Domenici Rivlin enterprise, trying to figure out in a big, broad way how to bring the long-term federal budget back towards balance, even as we dealt with the, short, the shorter-term uh, hugely disruptive impact of, uh, of, of the recession. What we've done in the last few years is continue to squeeze the shorter-term discretionary parts of the budget, which is why we're today uh, on the verge of, of locking in an, uh, uh, an agreement that will, will have real spending lower than it was in 2008 on the non-defense discretionary side. Defense is down, but that's because we're Iraq and Afghanistan spending are down. We are yet to take on Social Security and Medicare. We're expanding Medicaid in a big way um, uh, with, as, as part of the Obamacare initiative. And, and we, we talk about it. We say, well, we know what we have to do, but the devil is in the details. And there is no great stomach for getting into the details and saying to older folks, hey, you're going to have to receive a little bit less or work a little bit longer, and workforce, you might have to pay in a little bit more. These are very, very challenging uh, decisions with, with real potential political implications. Do we have to do it? Yes. Do we have to do it now? Yes. But I, we would have said the same thing five years ago. Bob Hines? The reality is, as the chairman and uh, Alan have said, we've got to solve this problem. Every year we don't solve the problem, it gets worse because we get build up more and more and more obligations we're not paying for. And it's insane. And we, it, we have got to restructure the programs, and we probably have to increase the, the, the cost of the programs, you know, by, in effect, uh, having people who are receiving benefits get a little bit. You know, it's not a matter of cutting off your right hand. It's maybe cutting off one joint of your pinky finger. But you've got to do something oh. to straighten the system out. Because if you don't, we're going to have no arms left. Not wow. my pinky finger, you don't. <laughs> All of a sudden, Bob Hines going to the mattresses mafia style. Good grief. Put, put that machete away. Yeah, no kidding. Carl Tubin. But uh, the chairman mentioned Social Security and, and, and that it should, it should come up and it should be dealt with, which we all agree with around this table. There was a letter. Evidently, there was something in a, in a bill two years ago where the president talked about doing something with Social Security. 
and there was a, a letter from Democrats to the president asking him not to do anything this year because we all we have Obamacare and now you're going to put Social Security. It's going to be too heavy for the election. But but again, though, it, 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 it strikes me that this third rail that nobody wants to talk about, it almost seems like it's a good way to get yourself unelected. It, at what point does Congress hold their nose and swallow? Chairman? Well, in 1982, they did it. I think the Republicans took it on with the Demo Actually, it was a Democrat majority in the House of Representatives, and they did it together and trimmed the Social Security program in some ways. Uh, and uh, as a result, the Republicans paid the price at the polls, and the Democrats had an overwhelming victory. Uh, that year. Yeah, it, it is the third rail and it's, it's very hard to deal with, but uh, it, if you look at, at simple numbers and project them out uh, for, the, for, uh, for those bean counters and mathematicians and uh, at this table and elsewhere, uh, I have to tell you it's, it's an easy uh, conclusion. Uh, it won't work and it's not going to last. We've got to face it sometime. Congressman Al? I think that the they missed the boat entirely with Simpson Bowles and, and, and several others that we mentioned before where it was looked at in a very broad sense and where you could put together something that would, the cuts would, you, you would, you would see that everybody was getting a cut. If you do this individually and you just uh, you know, take a, a slice out of Social Security, all the old folks are going to go. If you take it out of education, etc., and if you do it piecemeal, every single one of them will see their cut and will want it put back. If you could use the Simpson-Bowles method by which you would lay out where all the cuts would be and demonstrate that it was being even-handedly done across the board, I think you, I think you could sell that to the American public but we insist on dealing with these separately, and I don't think it'll ever get done that way. Well, the president turned his back on the Simpson-Bowles uh, deal, I, and, I, and I, frankly, I think you had a lot of support among Republicans and Democrats that would have supported it and possibly passed it, but without the president's support, uh, you can't get it. Well, he missed the boat. Denise Kraft. Well, he missed the boat. This is about to become a generational issue. I mean, my generation is, is going to be put in the position of not only supporting possibly our parents because of uh, financial issues, because everybody took a bath in the recent recession, but we also have children that we're going to be sending to school and, and, and having to pay for bills. So we're going to be kind of squeezed from both ends. And I, I think my generation is beginning to wake up and say, hey, wait a second here. <laughs> when we turn 65, we're going to have some problems here because we're not going to have a retirement ourselves because we're already going to be paying for our parents and our children. But you know, but one of the things, one of the criticisms we're hearing about this bill is, is that you know we have to deal with the budget bill. We've got to get a spending bill. It's bipartisan support in the Senate, hopefully bipartisan support in the House. Mr. Chairman, though, we still have two major pieces of legislation that are going to be big impacts on federal spending. One is the unemployment benefits bill that's still hanging out there. You're talking about anywhere from a $6 billion to a $26 billion to long-term up to a $70 billion spending impact in a time when we're trying to push on the Hill fiscal austerity and spending cuts. Do you envision that the unemployment benefits will get extended the way that the bill's coming out of the Senate 
Will it be approved in the House? Uh, probably not. I don't know what they've come up with, but I suspect it's for at least a, a year's worth of unemployment benefits uh, or more. Uh, we have gradually increased the benefit from 30 days to 60 days to 90 days to uh, in as much as a year in, in recent times. How long do we owe it to a person to keep him on the payroll while he doesn't have a job? Some people have, uh, I, I don't want to indict anybody who's in the situation where they can't find a job in this economy because it's tough out there. But on the other hand, uh, sooner or later, you've got to get out of the house and go find a job that will pay you something so that the government doesn't have to endow you for the rest of your life. Well, that sounds familiar. <laughs> and... Alan well, Moore. Yeah, I mean, as, as we as we talked about uh, in in the last uh, last week or two, that we just we we create this this emergency set of unemployment benefits. It's not well drafted because it means that states like North Dakota, South Dakota, <laughs> Iowa, Nebraska, all of whom have uh, unemployment rates under five percent, they get more benefits. It's not just the Nevadas and the Rhode Islands with unemployment over 9% and Michigan's. So we don't stop and say, whether it's in committee or elsewhere, how do, we, how do we reduce the cost of this thing so we're not talking about $26 billion? Maybe we could find a way to spend less. Then it might be easier to afford. We don't bother with that. We, and the press is, is lazy here. They say, I mean, the opinion pages are full of, how can we live with ourselves? This is, should be a no-brainer. This should be automatic. No, it should be a heavy-brainer and heavy investment of what makes the most sense. And as we've said before, there's, there's got to be a time limit on unemployment insurance unless we totally want to change the way, it's, the, the way it's structured and funded via a tax in the states. And then, then we say we've got a safety net. So when you run out of unemployment benefits, if you, if you can qualify because you... Your, your income and assets are low enough, there are other income support programs that are out there. Congressman Al Swift. And there again, I would suggest that the best place to do what you're talking about would be in a committee that could sit down and look at state by state by state, make judgments and make calls. And, and, and there's absolutely no reason that the you couldn't extend it for some states depending on their level of unemployment and not for others. But that's hard to do, you know, in Congress whole. That's what committees do. I totally agree with that. But, yep. but you're asking for, and we talked about this before we went on the air, Mr. Chairman, the disenfranchisement of some of the junior members, your freshmen, your sophomore members, that don't feel like they're included in part of the process. The regular rule of order would give them the voice of the committee, but we always have these gangs of six and gangs of eight, which include longstanding members of each body, is there a way to fix the disenfranchisement and get the total voice back in? Can we go back to regular order and empower the committees again? Well, we can if the leaders will permit it. Why uh, wouldn't they? And uh, Because their role has been enhanced in the last three or four years. Uh, if you look at these big deals that have come out, pronounced uh, uh, big packages for the whole country, uh, whether they're spending bills or they're taxing bills or they're uh, 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 bills that bail us out of a, a recession, uh, the fact is they've been confected between the White House and the majority leader of the House and the majority leader of the Senate, excuse me, the Speaker of the House, majority leader of the Senate, and maybe two or three other key people at the top of the ranks in, in each houses. 
the average rank-and-file Republican, Democrat, House and Senate person at, at the lower ends, the more junior members, haven't had any input into those packages at all. And they are disenfranchised. And, and the Amer under the Constitution, the American people are, are to elect their representatives to have a voice. And yet they've come up with these goofy rules like no earmarks, uh, uh, which I'm sorry, I'm sure a lot of pe people who are out there are listening and say, we've got to get rid of earmarks. Earmarks were not the problem. The, uh, the problem is the process. And if you can't get to regular order and have an de open debate among Republicans and Democrats in the House and Senate and have a free exchange of ideas so that everybody has input, then the system doesn't work. And that's, we've got to take the power away from the president and from the leadership and give it back to the rank and file members. And by, while I say the president, right now the president has more power than every, any president in my lifetime. And the executive branch is, is bigger than the government's ever been before. And members of Congress have abdicated their responsibility. If you've got a cure for cancer, you, need to go, uh, you, you don't have to be able to go to your congressman. You can't go to your congressman because he's not going to be able to do anything. You've got to go to either the leader of the, of the House or Senate or to the president, and he'll get the executive branch to, to pass it. Otherwise, it won't get done. All right, but Mr. Chairman, the, the other item that's still out there, Carl, I'll get to you in a second, but Mr. Chairman, the other big spending item that's still out there is the farm bill. The farm bill continues to languish. It's a big source of contention to both chambers in Congress. How are they going to be able to justify getting a high-priced bill like the farm bill through, including farm subsidies, including ethanol subsidies, and justify austerity in fiscal spending? Well, austerity is just one issue. You've got all sorts of issues, but I tell you, if you don't get a farm bill, the farmers are going to be mad, and that means the Republicans in rural areas are going to get their tails handed to them. Very good. Carl Tubin, you had a thought. Yeah, my, my thought is going on what the, the chairman said about, about uh, earmarks. Um, I, I thought earmarks were good, um, and I think that, that um, the problem is that, is that when you took earmarks away, I think you took a lot of um, um, dealings with the White House away, where stuff that they might be able to give out or stuff they might be able to promise to somebody and get get their support. But Carl, all of the decisions are made now by the executive branch. Members of Congress don't have input. And these bills are written by the leadership, but they, they, a guy is afraid to death to offer something that's for the good of his district, for his state, or for the nation. Because if, he, if it costs money, he says, it's an earmark and I can't consider it. That's stupid. I mean, we do, we, and, and, and the, the unelected executive branch, frankly, don't have to go to the, to the people and, and answer for anything. We're seeing it with the IRS and with all these other agencies. They're arrogant, and they can do what they want because they don't have to get elected. Very good point. I'm going to let that be the last word. Uh, this is obviously something we'll be keeping an eye on. We'll be keeping an eye on this uh, spending bill going to the House. We'll obviously be talking about it next week. But when we come back, we're going to talk about Bridgegate and the hopes for Chris Christie in 2016, and the rabid, blood-sucking media, we're part of it, that continues to just draw blood on every little thing they can find. This is Backroom Politics, live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. By the way, it's happy hour. We're going to order our cocktails, cut open another cigar. We'll be back in four minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. 
But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Back Room that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays. Now, you hear us talk about Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, 
Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Back Room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelley's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Back Room, go to www.shelleysbackroom.com slash private dash party. Shelley's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also a place for private parties. Lulu back in town, and I, I tell you, when I am back in town, or when any of my friends are back in town, or heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu, the most diversified, with some of the best-known brands, and some that you might even know, but might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again I might not get back home at all Lula's back in town
progress, uh, but it doesn't take me to get around, no. Tell the mailman not to call, he's coming home until the fall. And then again, I might not get home at all, soon as back in town. Oh, that woman's back in town, oh my, 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 my. And we're back live. Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Back Room. Thank and you for hanging around, those of you who did. Uh, they were hearing great music. It's big band for crying out loud, Congressman Al. That's Kemp Basie stuff. Hey, uh, while we're here, we're talking about Bridgegate. We're talking about the latest coming out of New Jersey. For those of you all who have been living under a rock for the past week, in case you don't know, the GOP anointed one, that is the governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie, uh, ran into a little bit of a snag. His allure was a little bit tarnished. The light has gotten a little dimmer after emails came out in a report uh, filed by the, of all newspapers, the North Bergen County Register, which showed that a three-lane backup, which was called a traffic study, happened and may have been initiated as retaliation to the mayor of Fort Lee, New Jersey, for not backing uh, <coughs> Governor Christie's re-election campaign. <clears throat> as a result, his a Democrat, who is a Democrat, absolutely. Uh, as a result, the campaign, sh uh, the campaign manager for Chris Christie, a longtime friend, was fired from his role in the uh, Republican Governors Association and has been dismissed as a possible candidate for chairman of the Republican Party in New Jersey. His deputy chief of staff has been fired, and his appointee to the Port Authority of New York, New Jersey, has been fired. The day, or within days, within days of the story happening, Chris Christie took, in his mind, full responsibility uh, for the issue, took swift action, and ironically, today, in, his, uh, in the opening of his State of the State uh, in the New Jersey legislature in Trenton, came out and said, still, the responsibility is his. Is his. He, will, uh, uh, he spoke for about 148 words, but basically was very definitive, this lack of trust will never happen again under his administration. So, let's go back to the scandal itself. Now, of course, as you can imagine, since it's Chris Christie, there has been a eating frenzy around Fort Lee, Trenton, and Bergen County, New Jersey. First of all, let's talk about the scandal itself. Uh, Bob Hines, is this really a scandal? I mean, is this something that the media should be just frothing like they are over? Or is this just, you know, a couple of e eager staffers trying to go off the reservation and trying to impress the boss? Well, first of all, if, if what we know now is all, that is, 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 is all there is, it means that the, uh, the governor had some bad staffers who went on a frolic of their own. If that's true, I don't think it's going to be a major problem for him. Uh, he's, I think he's gotten out in front as far as he could do. He did, he's did exactly what I think any good crisis manager would say. Get out in front of it and say you take responsibility and you've taken care of the, uh, the people who are fired and they've done, he's done what he can do. Now, if there's more to it than that, uh, he can uh, kiss his presidential hopes goodbye. Now, 
we're all we've all been around politics for a long time. Some of us longer than others. I'm not looking at Congressman Al or anything. But <laughs> when we, you know, hey, you know, there are a few of us around the table who haven't been elected. We've been around a long time. Oh, so, that, that, that's your call. You said it, Bob. I didn't. That's you and Carl. You know. Yeah. yeah exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, Al is not exactly a young kid either. I'm not even talking about the chairman. How long he's been around government, but. Mr. Chairman, I mean, let's be honest. You come from Louisiana. You all invented political retaliation down there. Is this a big deal, or is, is this just something that the media just needs something to chew on? I'll admit it. Louisiana has sometimes seen dirty politics. But I'm shocked. I'm shocked. I'm totally shocked that New Jersey has now gotten dirty politics. I mean, it's, it's astounding to me. This was worthy of a few days' uh, notice, but the press has paid, what, a, a steady eight days? Eight ten days, almost. Uh, 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 of, of nonstop uh, attention to this. And, and, and I think NBC gave a, no, a total of, of, of 50 seconds to the IRS scandal. Uh, Benghazi uh, got no attention uh, to speak of. Uh, the... the uh, Fast and furious thing where they smuggled guns across the border in some stupid plan, and, and, a, and a federal agent, U.S. federal agent, got killed, got very little attention. This thing's gotten a mammoth amount of attention, and, and in perspective, it, it's, it's just unreasonable, and, and frankly, it makes me question what the priorities of the president are. Congressman Al, I, I'm going to go to you as our Emmy, win, uh, Emmy Award-winning broadcaster at the table, as a longtime member of the media and current member here on Backroom Politics. When you look at the feeding frenzy that outlets, including uh, the New York Post, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and on top of that, MSNBC, CNN, that have just dedicated so much time to this, is this a matter of partisan politics in the media, or is this a matter of, hey, there's more to this than we're looking at? First of all, I think that this would be a very, very big story locally uh, under any circumstances. Well, anytime you block three lanes on the George Washington Bridge inbound, it's going to make news. That's that's right, and particularly locally, right among the people who were how it blew up into a national story is in part because the governor is a very very major figure in uh, national politics these days, and so uh, whatever you do, uh, you know, gets becomes automatically out of proportion. Uh, the good things he does and the bad things he does, both, I think. Uh, but the, yeah, I think the press became ridiculous on this. But I, but I have another point I'd like to make. I watched in my 16 years in Congress my colleagues, and it seemed to me like most members select as their staffers people who share their basic gut reactions, their basic philosophy, their basic everything else. And I suspect that this is true of the governor. And he has a, 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 a bully way about him, and you can read that both 
as TR and as other things. And I think he's, he's a tough guy and he plays politics tough. Here's an example of where his, his staff, under the best reading for the governor, where his staff decided to just go off on their own and do what they thought the governor would want. Uh, and they wouldn't have been on his staff if, he, if they hadn't thought that way, only they should have thought a little clearer. Alan Moore. So the governor has put his eggs into the following basket. I didn't know. Well, this brings up to a couple of questions. What did he know? When did he know it? And once he learned about it, what did he do? And if he didn't know, if he didn't hear, why? Now, this comes back to, to, to Al's question. Who are these people around him? This whole incident is going to either be a very good thing for Chris Christie or a very bad thing. Most states aren't like Louisiana and New Jersey where some really nasty, nasty stuff. I'm not saying it's only those two, but most people, and even if it, it, I'm not saying it's just those two, but most people don't expect of their politicians this kind of very nasty, disruptive behavior that puts, that puts normal citizens at risk. So the question is, is, is his narrative a true narrative? And, and, and there's a lot of people who are going to try to find that he knew more than he has let on. And if so, it could be the worst, the worst situation ever, and he's done. Or it could be that he really didn't know, which means that he may have had around him some people that if they didn't perfectly reflect him, have no business working in a governor's office with that kind of a power, and you would never want them in the White House, it's clear them out, and it's probably more than the people who've been cleared out. Chairman Livingston. I agree with what Alan just said, and, and, and certainly the governor's got to now show that he's cleaner than, uh, than Job uh, when it comes to this particular incident and that he didn't have anything to do with it. And if it turns out that he, he did, then he's got a big problem. Uh, but those questions are absolutely proper. What did he know, and when did he know it, and, and how did he come to it, and what did he do about it? He fired those people. Now, when you go back to Benghazi, those questions weren't even asked. But the president didn't fire anybody. Instead, he got his uh, Susan Rice, who's now his, uh, his national, national security, security advisor. advisor, to go out on national television for the, on all of the major stations and say it was some harebrained uh, uh, film by some Muslim guy, uh, any Muslim guy that uh, in, in California. And now we know that that had nothing whatsoever to do with this uprising. Unless and, you read the New York Times in which they say, well, it was actually a mad mob. But, but that's a whole other topic. Well, I, think, I think those questions should be asked in every instance. And certainly losing our ambassador and, and three wonderful uh, uh, public uh, soldiers uh, or public servants uh, it was, was a much weightier issue than this one is. Congressman Al. I, I agree with all of that. Uh, and this is not in contradiction to any of it. But the point I was trying to make when you cut me off, because I was probably rambling on. You know. Is that it is important to know when you elect somebody the kind of people he is likely to have around him or her and they are likely to be very like him or her. That's the point I was making. Hence, I think that this is probably not something that the voters should take into consideration 
he, he caused a traffic backup. Rather, it is who are the kind of people he will surround himself with. And if it's going to be bullies or people who are playing politics uh, real tough, that should be a consideration they should make. Uh, and, 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 and so that's after all of this has been done and we're in, we're in the next presidential election. You take a look at, uh, at his strong points. He's forceful. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't abide nonsense and all of that, but what kind of people will he have around him? That is a legitimate question that will probably be forgotten by that time, but which should not be forgotten. Carl Tubin. There's another situation in New Jersey which kind of points out the kind of governor that he's been. There was a fellow by the name of Stephen Fallop who was elected mayor of Jersey City. <clears throat> when he was uh, elected mayor, Mr. Uh, Baroni called and said, congratulations, the governor would like to talk to you, and we'd like to do anything we can for you. Uh, <clears throat> that was followed uh, by a call from the governor, congratulations, we'd love you to, <clears throat> we'd love to set up meetings for you, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, uh, the uh, <clears throat> woman who was, um, who was fired made the call and said, we're going to set up meetings for you, which they did. Then um, somebody asked him, would you support Governor Christie? And he said, no, I cannot support Governor Christie. I'm a Democrat. I, I won't do that. Consequently, all the meetings started to be canceled. And, uh, and, and they were trying to figure out and do what? Well, that, and that's it. Carl, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I want to say, I got to jump in. I, I have to jump in. Carl, look, okay, I'm full disclosure for everybody there listening. Uh, as everybody is well aware, I'm a moderate Republican. I am a Christie disciple. I come from the same mold as Chris Christie. Hell, I look like him, for crying out loud, without, without the goatee. The, Carl, you, you were involved in state politics. You can't tell me that this shocks you. And by the way, after a majority of the mayors in New Jersey, both Democratic and Republican, back. Christie, the mayor of Fort Lee and the mayor of most of North, the mayors of most of North Jersey play partisan politics themselves. How can you be surprised? That are you kidding me? I'm, not, I'm just putting it as an example of what goes on in, in with with uh, Governor Christie. And you I, know. Thought you were going to, I thought you were going to compliment Carl and not pounding on the table. And I was I concerned you were going to have a heart attack. <laughs> We've got, we got two very different kinds of things here. You've got this quiet, low-level retribution. Oh, it's suddenly hard to get a meeting, or a meeting gets canceled. Everybody does that kind of thing. What people don't do is inconvenience hundreds and thousands of people trying to get across a river into New York City, possibly putting people at physical risk. It was it was orders of magnitude worse, and that's Christie's problem. He had the best 2013 of any politician in the country. So far in 2014, he's had the worst 2014 of any politician, even worse than Obama with Obamacare. And now the, 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 he's got a huge ego, and with good reason, because he's an effective guy, he's got a lot of hubris, 
and this is going to bring him down a few notches. He's had to apologize and explain and deny, and he better not be lying. It's coming at a very good time. It's a couple. It's several years out from the next the election that he might be involved in. That's why I say this might be one of the best things that ever happened to him, assuming his fingerprints aren't on any of this stuff. Denise Kraft. And that's going to be the issue. I mean, from the legal standpoint, it's called interstate commerce. When you start playing with bridges, you start playing in the federal land, and the feds are going to investigate. They have to. So the question will be, when does the federal report come out? And by the way, when it comes out, it could be very interesting because he had a very close ties with Obama. I mean, he has a very good relationship because of what happened with Hurricane Sandy. In addition to, you know, this investigation. Some Republicans say it helped him get reelected. I know, but now they're talking about whether or not he misused money when he did all those videos and whether or not it should have had him and his family. And, and he, you know, his response is, well, but the federal government okayed it. So now we're going to see whether or not the close relationship that he had with the president is going to last or whether or not it's going to fray the closer we get to election because he is an incredible viable candidate. And I have to say as a Democrat, he's the candidate that I most fear because he's the one that I think appeals to those that would cross over. Bob Hines. Well, if it, if it comes down to the fact that whether he's hoping to ha the president to help him, forget it. Interestingly enough, the, um, evidently the governor of California and uh, uh, had ads done also uh, with state money to promote California. And he was, in, in, in Christie's defense, he was trying to promote the Jersey Shore. <laughs> right, which is not there, there are, there are other, not unusual. There are some other reports out there about these ads that the, that the first choice was to get Bruce Springsteen or John Bon Jovi to be featured in these ads. They were both on tour, couldn't do it. Christie wasn't in the original proposal. It, it made some sense. Big name, big, big personality, well-known. I, I think that issue, it, 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 we'll, we'll exhaust it. And, and the, the media and some of the Democrats better be careful not to overdo this. You, you, you don't want to create a, a, a sympathy backlash. You, this whole though thing, this though, shocks. I totally agree with you. All right. Oh, <laughs> wow. Oh, my God. Oh, oh, my God. Al's listening. Al's listening. After um, half a martini, he's listening. <laughs> this whole thing, though, is reminds of another story that's out in the last few days, and that's the so-called Clinton hit list. There's a new book coming out that indicates... I'm shocked again. That <laughs> aren't we all? That Bill and Hillary Clinton have a hit list. They have people that, that, that they were very angry with when she was in the, in the primaries back in 2008, yeah, to trying, to become, trying to become the candidate, and they rated people apparently one to seven. One was their best friends. Seven was the people, were the people they most were most angry with. Including Claire McCaskill. Including Claire McCaskill. Um, and uh, it's really going to be this book, you know, the, 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 the initial reports from the book are quite interesting on, on, on who's a one, who's a seven, who's in between. Which, by the way, I want to go off on a legend. That book is written by one of our good friends at Background Politics, Jonathan Allen, who's the White House correspondent for Politico. Hopefully, Jonathan, Jonathan, if you're listening, which I hope you are, brother, hopefully you'll come on and give us some exclusive on this. But that book is very detailed in the fact that 
Bill and Hillary are running a very, as Al put it, Nixon-esque, LBJ-esque, uh, you know, machine political mafia. You're nodding your head yes, Mr. Chairman. I didn't Chan- say LBJ. <laughs> I said LBJ. You said Nixonian. I, I mean, let's be honest. You have I mean, your guy out. It, it seems that they're focused on Bridgegate. This hit list names a lot of predominant Democrats as well, Mr. Chairman. Is this something that could hinder or hamper any sort of 2016 aspirations for Hillary, or is this going to be swept under the rug? I don't think anybody's going to pay any attention yeah. to it. <laughs> this is, this is Hillary has so many other issues that will be uh, brought up that they'll make this pale by comparison. But uh, look, uh, she, she's a tough lady, and Bill Clinton, uh, if, if nothing else, has probably been the most effective politician of modern times. So uh, that's a team that, uh, that I think is going to be uh, uh, formidable, uh, and I don't think anybody's going to pay attention to this part. Alan Moore, we there, got two minutes left. There's, no, there's nobody in, in, in electoral politics who doesn't have in their mind, uh, in paper, in, in, in their staff's mind, in their own mind, people that they're angry with, people that they want to thank and would do almost anything for its standard procedure. Now, the Clintons have had so much contact with so many people over time. They've got a long list, and there were people who they felt really betrayed them, people who they had been very, very kind to. Having said that, um, those people shouldn't have been asking for much in, in the intervening years. But if, if, if Hillary Clinton decides to run for president... They're going to need all those people, whether one through seven, and all the money behind them. So in politics, hatred is forgotten, at least for <clears throat> political purposes, even if not inside your deepest soul. Well, in the last minute of this segment, real quick, I want to go around the table. Number one, does this hurt uh, Christie's chance in 2016? Al? Yes, but probably not much. Bob Hines? Only if it has... There, something comes out that he knew. Denise? No. no Chairman I'm Livingston. Bob. If something else comes out, then uh, he's, he's in trouble, but otherwise, no. Alan Moore? Yeah, it's too soon to know. We don't know enough yet. Carl Tubin? I agree with Alan. Very good. The correct answer we're looking for is no, because we know he's not going to be involved. He's already been upfront about it. Wow, did I did I go John McLaughlin yeah, on that? Thank you. I did. There you go. You just went in the you just went in the bag for him. I did. It. I did. Chairman's looking like I stayed here for another hour. Why? <laughs> this is where it gets really interesting. When we when we get back, uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about actually a very serious subject. Uh, our very own Denise Krep testified in front of a closed hearing the other day on the sexual harassment issue inside. Uh, inside DOD. It's a serious issue. I want to take a few minutes on her thoughts on it and exactly how big a problem it is for DOD. This is Backroom Politics. We'll be back in one minute. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Backroom is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelly's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, 
why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Back Room, go to www.shelleysbackroom.com slash private dash party. Shelley's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also a place for private parties. I do play a fine piano, don't I, Congressman? Thanks, yes, thanks for pointing that out. Hey, uh, we're back. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We're going to change uh, for just a couple of minutes. I want to talk to uh, Denise a little bit about her testimony in front of a DOD hearing uh, that happened regarding the serious issue of sexual harassment inside the military. Uh, Denise, it struck you as odd as this was a closed hearing. Yeah. Did any indication why DOD wanted to do this in front of a closed hearing? They said they couldn't open it because of DOD policy and because of the Federal Advisory Committee Act. Because I had specifically told them ahead of time, you were sending the wrong message. Open this hearing up. But it, 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 it strikes me that, first of all, this has been something that Kristen Gillibrand, uh, Senator out of New York, has made a very public issue. Uh, she's done a good job about getting it into the forefront of the public view. Yet DOD seems to think this is a DOD problem, it's an internal problem, let us handle our own dirty laundry. Can DOD handle its own dirty laundry in this case? No. No, in fact, what I testified, along with other eight admirals and generals, was that the current uh, reporting process for sexual assault in the military should be changed and that the commanding officer, or the current commanding officer, should be taken out and that the decisions regarding uh, prosecution should be given to the lawyers. And a lot of people say, you know, you know, or when they when they start talking about this legislation, that Senator Gillibrand shouldn't be doing this. We should be trusting the military. That the military knows what's best. But you know, if I'm joined joined by eight other members of the military who are saying that uh, there should be change, then we should be heard. And, and Justin, what became interesting about this was that after I testified, because I testified in the morning. And then there was another closed hearing, and it was uh, eight uh, admirals and generals testifying against it, that they decided to hold a public hearing. So now there's going to be a public hearing on January the 30th. It's from 8.30 to 5 at the George Washington University. And again, it's going to be talking about the role of the commander. Now, folks, I think this is a very serious issue because there is a problem. Because it's not just women that are being raped. It's men that are being raped. And a lot of folks don't realize that. You know, they think, oh, it's just women, and it's just women because, you know, we've let the women go into combat situations. Now, this is an issue that's been happening now for generations. I mean, when I was sitting there and I was listening to people talking about coming in in the 60s and 70s and the 80s and the 90s, there was a consistent theme. The consistent theme was that DOD was hiding this. And DOD was hiding this because they didn't want to talk about but, it. But it, DOD's credibility right now is a little bit lacking, considering the fact that you've had two senior flag officers, a general yep. and an admiral, yeah. Both be removed for cause because they themselves have sexual harassment charges pending against them. Yep. And that almost seems like we've got a fox guarding hen house situation inside DOD. Oh, is this the big is this the big issue that concerns uh, Senator Gillibrand? 
Absolutely. Not only do you have the 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 do you have the
and what the founding fathers want the Congress to be, find a way to solve problems. I think it started with Mr. Boehner's statement about a month ago. It's, it's continued with the, uh, with the efforts of, uh, of uh, Mr. Uh, Paul, Paul, uh, Paul, Ryan. Paul Ryan and his team. Um, and it's, it's continued with Mrs. Mikulski and her reference. And I think it's wonderful to see that a little bit of, little bit of getting things done and finding solutions and moving on is so important that I cannot, I cannot say strongly enough that if we keep doing this a little bit longer, maybe some people will discover that it's a pretty good way to do business. Wow. Good story. It's the only way to do business. Exactly. Yeah. Denise Krupp, you gave us your story, obviously. Yeah. Thanks.